Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press Podcast, and I'm Michael Hoke. The name William F. Buckley Jr. alone conjures up strong feelings. Widely regarded as the most influential American conservative, Buckley was a writer, an activist, an organizer, a TV show host, a magazine founder, and a man with the ear of policymakers and presidents. In his book, A Man and His Presidents, The Political Odyssey of William F. Buckley Jr., Alvin Felsenberg gives us the inside story on this icon of the conservative movement. Al served as the special assistant and advisor to the National Broadcasting Board of Governors, as consultant to the Secretary of the Navy, and as director of community outreach and public liaison for the Office of Secretary in the U.S. Department of Defense during the George W. Bush administration. He was principal spokesman for the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, also known as 9-11 Commission. Al, thank you for coming on today. Hey, it's a great pleasure. So to start with, um, I think, obviously, William F. Buckley is known uh, for many things. But what was he like um, in private? What, what kind of person was he to his, his family and friends? Well, to his associates and to most people who knew him, he was exceptionally charming, uh, exceptionally kind, uh, and exceptionally devoted both to his cause uh, and to his friends. Uh, that occasionally caused some uh, uh, internal conflict because he had great loyalty to friends. He tried very hard to keep a friendship, never let political uh, disagreement uh, rip apart uh, a friendship. A tremendous gift. Uh, for friendship, all kinds of uh, anonymous deeds for people he knew, sometimes people he didn't know, that uh, were magnificent gestures. And uh, he was uh, a great peer. Uh, He had uh, capacity to attract young people to him uh, like a magnet. Uh, We could go through a list of people who were active in journalism and and, uh, other fields today uh, whose career he gave a a boost to. And he also was... um, a great, well, a protege of, of some some of the great people of the generation that came before him. Uh, he, he cultivated both protégés and mentors. Mm-hmm. And the three or four mentors that made a big impact on him were Wilmer Kendall, who was a professor at Yale uh, when Buckley was an undergraduate, who later joined the magazine, which is seeing a professor working for a student here. Uh, Wilmer uh, Kendall was a big influence. Uh, Whitaker Chambers was perhaps even a bigger influence. Uh, Chambers uh, was the gentleman who identified Alger Hess as a spy for the uh, USSR Mm -hmm. uh, during World War II. And most people believed Hiss because he was very much part of the establishment. Uh, Chambers also had been a communist and an atheist and made this long journey uh, to an uh, anti-communist and a man of God. He was a religious Quaker, but long story there, and had a great impact on Buckley. The third one was James Burnham, uh, who brought a bit of real politic uh, into Buckley's world at National Review. Buckley started out as a great uh, iconoclast, mm-hmm. and uh, Burnham and Chambers told him, occasionally you have to prioritize to get where you want to go, <laughs> and you can't all get it at once. And, of course, the fourth one was Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's both a, a a follower of Bill and a uh, uh, and a mentor in odd ways. Go ahead, sir. Sorry. No, no, of course. Um, 
going back to the to the first person you mentioned his, uh, mentioned his professor here at Yale. Um, what was Buckley's What was Buckley's time at Yale like? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, uh, he was a, uh, a gifted organizer. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He excelled at two things. He knew that when he was going to Yale. Remember, he was an older student. Right. Uh, he was the uh, World War II generation, that great generation that uh, put their worlds on hold during World War II when they were drafted or enlisted. And uh, they wanted to get on with their lives very, very quickly. And uh, when he hit the campus, he was, uh, let's see, he was born in 1925, 1946. He was already 21 when he came in, rather old as a freshman. Mm-hmm. And uh, he decided that he wanted to run the Yale Daily News the day he arrived. And he and a friend of his, who would later become his brother-in-law, uh, Brent Bazell, uh, had a gift for debate. So they were championship debaters. Every year they won the North American Cup, the whole four years, uh, Bill, at Yale. And the Yale Daily News, he, he started out very, very quickly knowing he was going to do that. Uh, a very good organizer. He was a man on campus from the get-go. Uh, he also was a... Um, a uh, let's say a uh, ideological conservative Republican mm-hmm. at a campus that was not liberal. <laughs> interestingly, more homogenous than it is now, mm-hmm. and uh, and most of them, most of the fam- most of the, the students had been uh, legacies where their parents had their father had gone to Yale. At least uh, it wasn't the case with Bill, but he had two brothers who preceded him uh, to Yale, and a poll was taken in 1948 where I think about 60 percent of the undergraduates. We're supporting um, uh, Dewey mm-hmm. over to him. It didn't necessarily mean, though, that this was a uh, conservative-leaning uh, school. In other words, uh, he wanted to change the world. He wanted to repeal the New Deal. Mm-hmm. He wanted to resist the uh, rising welfare state. He wanted to stand up strong to the Soviet Union. Uh, most conservatives in those days were interested in going to Wall Street, <laughs> I guess as they are now, <laughs> not only conservatives now, okay, and making money uh-huh. and uh, being sociable and were not that politically active, even though they may have leaned his way. So that's kind of what Yale was like and what he was like. Um, and, you know, talking about his his quick <laughs> ascension uh, at the at Yale oh. Daily News, for example, uh, you talk about in the book how... Um, as uh, as children, they had sort of a family newspaper that they put together, correct? Yes. yes. <laughs> so his his uh, love of, of founding newspapers started at a young age. It sounds like. Well, all the Buckley children they were they were ten in the family, and they all were writers. They <laughs> all were literate. At different times, they were all working for National Magazine, National Review Magazine, the magazine uh, he founded in mm-hmm. the mid fifties. Uh, but let me tell you just one very, very quick story. Now, most young people come into the world and their parents tell them, if you want to get along in, in the world, uh, sometimes you have to uh, compromise with other children. You have to, don't bring up things that are divisive uh, on the playing field, like uh, religion and politics and other <laughs> things. Uh, get along, go along, compromise. And he took the view, uh, no, I want the world to come along to my point of view. <laughs> and and uh, in the Buckley world was a very... Uh, sheltered existence. He had private tutors most of the time. Uh-huh. Uh, before he was finished 15, he went to the Millbrook School. But in those early years, uh, his entire world uh, agreed with him. So we're <laughs> talking about his nine siblings and his parents who thought he could do no wrong. So when you tried out for the Yale Daily News in Bill's time, 
you not only have to uh, uh, outright everybody else on a number of more topics, more stories and more fields and more diversity, but you also had to sell ads. Mm-hmm. Now, now they have separated that. It's a different tryout for the, uh, uh, the, the business part. So in selling ads, think about this for a moment. Uh, Yale was all male. Mm-hmm. He had six sisters, and they went to places like Smith and Vassar. So the year Bill was, uh, was trying out for the, the, the uh, editorship, uh, the uh, Yale Daily News started to run ads for all these lady dress shops in Northampton, Massachusetts, <laughs> and Poughkeepsie, New York. Now, why would they do that? <laughs> well, Mrs. Buckley had an account, <laughs> and she had six girls who needed clothes. And, uh, you know, they call this goodwill in accounting. Uh, you want to keep the account, be nice to the young ladies, and even they were running ads, selling ads for their brother uh, to be, help them get the editorship. So that's the kind of family they were. <laughs> when he ran for mayor, they're all, in the, they're all giving out handbills and writing speeches and doing other things for him. Same thing's true with uh, James Buckley, uh, Bill's elder brother, who was a United States senator from New York. But it was always all for one and one for all, and everything one did was a family enterprise. And uh, a lot of uh, a lot of what um, he was trying to accomplish, I think you you mentioned at least as a as a young man and possibly further along. Yeah, he he really wanted to sort of uh, to impress his father, who was also very outspoken. Um, yes. Was do you think he accomplished that? Was his dad uh, was his dad proud of what he was able to do? Well, I don't know how many of our listeners are from large families. Uh, but Bill was six of ten. Right. So people from large families tell me when the oldest son uh, scrapes his knee on the sidewalk, mm-hmm. uh, horror, horror, get him to the ER. <laughs> uh, uh, he's going to get infected. He's going to, he's going to, oh, terrible, terrible, terrible. By the time the sixth one comes <laughs> along, you know, uh, suck it up, stand up, take it like a man. You know, they've been through it before. Right. right? Can't you see I'm watching Perry Mason? Go away. <laughs> yeah. uh, so how do you get attention right. uh, in a family like that? Well, uh, he used his wit, uh, a conversation at dinner. He found, he found ways uh, to coin phrases. Uh, it wasn't only that he, disagreed, that he agreed with his father politically. His father was a very strong voice mm-hmm. uh, for laissez-faire economics, mm-hmm. uh, for what they called then isolationism in the sense that uh, we only, we only uh, invest American treasure abroad. Mm-hmm. in pursuit of a discernible national interest to keep us safe. We don't go out there, as John Quincy Adams would say, looking for uh, devils to destroy, okay? Uh, that was the old man's point of view. Mm-hmm. All the children had that point of view. Buckley would uh, impress everyone else in the household with the way that he made things uh, uh, sparkle. Uh, George Will once said that Buckley had a smile that would light up an auditorium. <laughs> Uh, this was discernible to people very early. He enjoyed uh, turning a phrase. He enjoyed uh, using words that hadn't been used before, but were perfectly acceptable in the dictionary. Uh, when I was studying for my SAT, I used to circle all the words in his uh, column that I didn't know. And, uh, and some of them did appear on the test. Surprise, surprise. Uh, so that's, that's how he got attention in the family. And uh, the same thing happened in prep school. The same thing even happened at Yale. Mm-hmm. Uh, people may not have agreed with his point of view, uh, but uh, as a championship debater, there was nobody better. Yeah, and I think, you know, it seems like that that idea of gaining attention 
seems to have carried over well into his adult life. I mean, when he was debating on his show or elsewhere, even when he wasn't speaking, he seemed to <laughs> find ways well, to... Well, he had a way. Yeah. He had a, I'll tell one, one uh, story, but he had a way of getting attention even when he wasn't speaking. Uh, he would make gestures. Uh-huh. He would sigh. He would roll his eyes. <laughs> and then sometimes, he, I call this guerrilla debating, uh, when he was debating the Oxford Union, uh, in the middle of the last sentence, uh, he was the next to last speaker. Uh, he took out a white handkerchief <laughs> and he started waving it. And that was the cue for some of the yellies in the audience, and most of them were yellies, uh, to start singing the Yale anthem at football games. <laughs> uh, these four British students had no idea what hit them. What did, what did we do? Why is everybody singing? Why is this place going crazy? He didn't say anything unusual. And so he did that all the time. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, only one person pulled that on him in a 50-year career, and so I think he had a pretty good record. And, and who was that? I'll tell you that. I thought you were going to ask. <laughs> Jermaine Greer. Uh-huh. Jermaine Greer, the uh, feminist uh, uh, scholar from Australia, but I think she had a, do- a degree from Oxford. Uh, early feminist academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, she went on firing line, and the question is, are people judged by their uh, physical appearance? Uh, by employers who promote them. And she said, oh, come, come. If you were not a handsome man, you think you'd have the show. <laughs> and he turned red lobster red, <laughs> and he said, in a typical Buckley ask, uh, well, let's just call that an unproved hypothesis. <laughs> so the guerrilla tactics were, she looked at the audience and said, I can prove this right now. Isn't he a good-looking man? <laughs> and the place burst out in applause. Now, uh, when you go went into firing line, and you were in the audience, you were told, do not applaud, uh, do not make any gestures, hold the signs of appreciation till the end when uh-huh. you hear the theme song. Uh, so she broke the rule and rested him in his own game. The debate was kind of over, and uh, he enjoyed every minute of it. But it's the only person I saw out Buckley Buckley. <laughs> Although I think I have seen him... Uh... If I remember correctly, there was a there was a, an episode with Groucho Marx, and I think Groucho Marx made yes. Buckley blush as well. Yes, uh, yes, he did too. <laughs> and and uh, uh, it was a big surprise to me to find out what a political conservative Groucho Marx was. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He was an early donor to National Review. Uh, they got along very well, and he wrote a memoir, which was you know not the kind of memoir you think that a comedian would do. And he did the same thing with Bill too. You're absolutely correct. Uh, <laughs> They were good friends off camera. Uh-huh. Um, so, I mean, talking about fire line, Firing Line, how did, uh, how did that television program come about? Well, I tell this to my students that you always don't know, always accept uh, a chance to do something. You never know what's going to happen. Well, he didn't run for mayor because he thought he'd be famous. Uh, he ran for mayor of New York in 1965, as a unabashed conservative candidate, mm-hmm. a year after Barry Goldwater was trounced by Lyndon Johnson in what was then the largest landslide in American history. Mm-hmm. And he chose to run for mayor in the most liberal city in the world. <laughs> and the, the question was, why are you doing this? Well, he called it a paradigmatic campaign. So, of course, I ran to the dictionary right away. <laughs> uh, he wanted to give a hearing to conservative uh, ideas. Uh-huh. Uh, in the most liberal place of all. He also knew it was the, the media capital. So uh, in the middle of the campaign, it's hard to imagine in the age of the Internet with uh, newspapers dying daily in front of us, mm-hmm. print journalism dying out. And uh, at that time, New York had 12 newspapers. Imagine that 
And uh, there was a newspaper strike called. And it was called deliberately to uh, uh, disrupt uh, life in New York and, and make people pay attention to the union grievances. So there was no print, essentially. One newspaper continued to publish. There was no real print. So the electronic media uh, uh, filled the void. Mm-hmm. So we had radio and television. Now, maybe John Lindsay, who was also a Yale graduate, knew that Buckley somewhere along the way had debated. Lindsay was older. Maybe he has gone before that Buckley was really making it big. Uh, Beam had no idea, and the press had no idea that Buckley was champion debater. Uh, he was making rhetorical points. He wasn't out to be mayor. So he would come up with the most outrageous statements in these debates. Well, I'll give you one. Uh, uh, how would you uh, characterize the differences between your two opponents? The answer was uh, Mr. Lindsay is six foot five, a rather tall liberal, I would say. Uh, Mr. Beam is barely five feet tall, uh, with um, lifts in his shoes. <laughs> At that, I would call him a short liberal. So the differences are biological, uh, not ideological. Well, set me right back to the dictionary again. I was only 15 years old. And uh, these are new words to me. Okay. Well, every producer in America was watching this. And uh, the election was in November of 65. Mm-hmm. He polled about uh, 11, uh, uh, 12% of the vote. 13, I, I'm sure changing him, 13% of the vote. And by March, he had a contract uh, with RKO to do a debate show. <laughs> and every week, he would have a prominent liberal. And they'd go at it for an hour. Uh, the first guest was um, uh, Norman Thomas, six-time candidate for president of the United States on the Socialist Party ticket. The first question was, well, Mr. Thomas, you run for president six times. Um, six times you've lost. You're 86 years old. Uh, when are you going to accept defeat? <laughs> the American people are not going to will- willingly embrace socialism. Well, that's the first question. <laughs> so after that, are you still beating your wife kind of thing? Well, two years in, um, PBS, one of the last uh, uh, agencies established by Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, uh, was now running what you call, we call public television now, PBS. Uh, and uh, they asked for the show, and the show then was taken nationally. And uh, as uh, Paul Harvey would say, you now know the rest of the story. But firing line came out of the watching the debates for mayor, which were, there were so many of them because of a newspaper strike. Huh. And um, so Buckley's politics, he obviously was not afraid uh, to sort of uh, take stances. And uh, in yes. in the 1948 election, which you sort of alluded to earlier, uh, Dewey, yes. Dewey yes. Truman, um, there were some fears that the Soviets were directing... Uh, a third-party candidate, Henry Wallace's campaign. Yes. And Buckley worked yes. to undermine his campaign, correct? Yes, yes. Now, now I told you that the campus among the students was overwhelmingly for Dewey. Mm-hmm. Uh, among the faculty, no surprise, uh, there was a horse race between Harry Truman, not in Dewey, uh, but Henry Wallace. Now, Henry Wallace was a former vice president. He's been Franklin Roosevelt's vice president in, in 1940 when Roosevelt got the third term. And uh, he was unceremoniously dumped from the ticket when several of the Chicago, uh, well, the Chicago mayor and several labor leaders thought he was too out there uh, to sell. Okay, so mm-hmm. they forced Franklin Roosevelt 
uh, to dump him. So he picked Harry Truman. We know the rest of that Mm -hmm. story. But Wallace called himself the progressive, took under the banner of the progressive uh, party candidacy ticket. And he was basically parroting the Soviet line uh, in the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything was our fault. Everything uh, uh, Truman was too aggressive. Uh, the the uh, Soviet Union had had suffered greatly in the war, which it had, and it was entitled to uh, dominate Eastern Europe because by having its own governments in Eastern Europe, it would stop a further German uh, uh, invasion and things like that. Well, what Buckley found out. Was he says? But first of all, many communists openly they were the Communist Party was not outlawed. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them openly were on the Wallace uh, masthead and 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 taking positions in the campaign. But more than that, uh, he said that Wallace might get one percent of the vote, which is what he got. But of that one percent, ninety percent were actors, writers, uh, 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 filmmakers, uh, academicians that. These were the smartest people in the country that the communists were trying to get. These people that uh, communicated the communications industry and were trying to uh, subvert our process. Mm-hmm. And the closest the foreign government had come. Well, in recent times, we have now discovered through certain uh, documents that were made available to the United States after the USSR fell when Boris Yeltsin was president of Russia, mm-hmm. uh, democratic Russia. This was directed by Moscow. Hmm. Uh, but but Buckley realized that ideas have consequences, and uh, a great deal of um, of appeal uh, communism had uh, to a, a young generation that wanted a better world that had been through depression and two world wars. And he said, "Well, how do I get the young people to to uh, embrace conservatism?" So he studied very heavily how how uh, socialists and communist organizations reached out to young people. And he tried to parrot that. Uh, maybe you read when you were in school that uh, 10 Days That Shook the World, which is an eyewitness account of the Russian Revolution, mm-hmm. written by John Reed, a Harvard graduate, the only American uh, buried in uh, Red Square. Hmm. Uh, Jack London, the novelist. Mm-hmm. Well, how come they were so left-wing? Uh, he found out that they joined organizations in college, and uh, there were socialist alliances, there were organizations, there were people determined to build a better world. And he said he was going to do that on the right. Mm-hmm. So he went out and he studied this, and he very vigorously uh, debated the Wallace people. Even though he, he was a young Republican, he wanted Dewey to beat Truman, but he was more interested in seeing that Wallace was buried deeply <laughs> and that the communist uh, infiltration was exposed. Uh, he wrote a novel um, about it. He talked a little bit about how the campaign was run, and he quoted a little bit from some of the papers I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's interesting because it seems there are some parallels with maybe things in the current news cycle. Yeah, um, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> what do you what do you think? Uh, obviously, this is speculative, but what do you think Buckley yeah. would have to say about these sort of current allegations of Russia meddling in the uh, 2016 election? Uh, well, a couple of things that we know uh, uh, on the Russian meddling. This is very interesting that. Uh, it's not a communist Russia anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you'd call uh, Putin. I mean, you'd call him alt-right. Maybe some people would call him fascist even. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly Sog. I mean, he certainly... Uh, Buckley took great umbrage at people that uh, espoused what he called moral equivalency. Uh, moral equivalency 
used to say, okay, we have a, a, a person crossing the street, trying to cross the street in a wheelchair. And we have a passerby grabs the wheelchair and pushes it in front of an oncoming bus. Terrible story, terrible ending. We have another case where a person's navigating through in a wheelchair and uh, the light changes and the passerby pulls the person out of an oncoming bus. Well, happy ending. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're not moral equivalent. The, the, the motives of the Samaritan passersby were different. And it's not enough to, to say that uh, the United States and the USSR are morally equivalent because they both have tanks and they both have nuclear weapons. And they both have spies. What is it used for? Mm -hmm. um, I know that by that standard, he would have been very upset, mm -hmm. even though he did not would not have endorsed President Obama last the last previous two elections. He was mm -hmm. a personal friend of McCain and, and uh, was no longer with us. I think when Romney was running, but mm -hmm. uh, the idea that somebody would say that the president of the United States and the president of Russia uh, both kill journalists, uh -huh. uh, both uh, both uh, act against uh, political opponents. Um, that's just not true. And the fact that we had somebody saying, well, we kill journalists over here, uh, I think it was a disgrace that the press did not say name one journalist that President Obama had murdered. One, mm -hmm. one American journalist. Uh, we're not talking about spies. We're not talking about abroad or people pretending to be journalists. We're talking about an American journalist. Name one. Uh, name one uh, political opponent of Obama's in jail. I mean, you spent two years on TV telling the American people he wasn't even born here. <laughs> and excuse me, you're not in jail. All right. He would have said that. Mm -hmm. But what he did say, more importantly, it's very hard to extrapolate, mm -hmm. you know, what someone not with us would say. But he did say that he was worried about candidates, and he mentioned Trump by name in 2000, mm -hmm. who offered themselves and their persona uh, rather than a platform. Mm -hmm. uh, he was worried about cult of personality. He was worried about that kind of magnetism that he had seen grow up in other countries when he was a boy. He was a great uh, admirer of our system, uh, checks and balances, separation of powers. Uh, he would have hoped that the Congress... Uh, stood up for its institutional prerogatives. He said that when Bush was in office, mm -hmm. uh, where is Congress? Uh, Bush has had six years of Iraq to himself. Uh, what is Congress's view of America's role in the world? Why aren't they forcing alternatives on him? Why aren't they uh, holding more hearings about how long this occupation will go and why it's not going well? He wrote all that when he was with us. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so he would have been very concerned about the health of uh, Congress, courts, media, uh, checks and balances on the president. Mm -hmm. He wants that even when he had a president. He agreed <laughs> with 100 percent, almost 100 percent, Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. uh, he still thought he should be held to account. So I think that we know that. He wrote that. Right. Yeah. And the uh, the the article you're talking about from 2000 he wrote in a march april issue of cigar aficionado where he he, yes. Pre yes. he presciently yes. called uh his, for donald trump said look for the narcissist the most obvious target in today's lineup yes. is of course donald trump exactly well he he, he was fearful of narcissism uh, -huh. uh because a cult of personality and mm -hmm. and he saw that in the 30s the nuremberg rallies and all of that uh now you said at the beginning uh, that Buckley occupied many platforms. That mm -hmm. was how you introduced me. You talked about television, radio, mm -hmm. uh, columns. Uh, well, here's an example. 
uh, he had a way of finding you wherever you were. And he didn't write this. We're talking about in National Review. Could have. He didn't write that in his column. Mm-hmm. Uh, he found you in a specialty magazine. <laughs> right. And he wrote politics. He wasn't writing about cigars. <laughs> right. Uh, he wrote for Wine Aficionado, too. Mm-hmm. And he, he put in stories about politics. He wrote in sailing uh, magazines. He wrote for Esquire. He wrote for Vanity Fair. Uh, he even got sent into a Playboy interview. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wherever you are, <laughs> he'll find you. And uh, he spent a lot of time on PBS, not because he, was, he had a show on PBS, of course, but not because he necessarily liked uh, PBS more than he liked Fox. But he knew that if he went on PBS, he would talk to people who didn't agree with him. Mm-hmm. Where if he went on Fox, which he did, he'd be talking to people who did agree with him. And he wanted to have a conversation with the other side. Mm-hmm. That's why he would uh, write for such esoteric things as Cigar Fixionado, <laughs> a place I don't usually go. Right, right. But thanks to Google search, thanks to Google search, <laughs> You can type in Buckley and Trump, and that piece will come up. That's right, yeah. Well, and it's funny. I mean, that is that is sort of a, a, a current complaint from both sides, is that you this this idea of, of the echo chamber, uh, where you only hear, you know, you, you're if you're a liberal, you go to MSNBC. If you're a conservative, you go to Fox, right. or, or even more extreme to somewhere right. like Breitbart. And uh, it, Buckley was trying not to do that. In fact, was actively not doing right. that. Well, funny, you know, he he argued the show was the only the only conservative uh, equal time uh, on PBS. But uh, to get that, he had to give away half the show to the other side. <laughs> he didn't mind. Right. He didn't mind. Right. So so to hear uh, Schlesinger or Galbraith or Norm Chomsky, uh-huh. uh, their their followers had to listen to Buckley for half hour <laughs> right. or an hour. Right. It was an hour show, so they got Bill for a half hour. Right. Later, it became sadly a half hour, and they only got him for fifteen minutes. But mm-hmm. uh, both sides were turning, turning in, tuning in. Uh, we don't see much of that now. We see a little bit of it now uh, because some of the problems that have beset Fox has meant that some people have gone over to MSNBC, where you see George Will now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he used to be on Fox and others. So you see a little bit of it now, but uh, you don't see too many progressives on Fox. That's true. You see a few. Um, what do you think? I mean, obviously, with as many accomplishments as Buckley has, this may be sort of hard to pin down. But what do you think is his biggest legacy? Well, history would probably say that in the course of a half century, he was on the public stage. Uh, he, more than any other uh, private citizen, moved the country, had a tremendous impact on the country, uh, moving it to the direction where he wanted it to go. Never had a public office. He, he ran once, and he got 13%. Mm-hmm. Never took a full-time appointment. But in the day when he was coming up, Lionel Trilling was the literary scholar, um, literary critic at Columbia, said there, were, there was only one liberal... One philosophy in America, and it was liberalism. There were no conservative ideas. Uh, no one said that when Bill died. In fact, they, they said that uh, he spawned a whole movement. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he elected a president, and through that president, uh, changed America. It was Obama who called Reagan a transformational president. Mm-hmm. And Buckley did more by Reagan's own admission than anyone else to make that presidency possible. Now, that's what I say. Bill said that his uh, greatest legacy was keeping that movement uh, free 
of racism, anti-Semitism, uh, kookery, and nuttery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, the weakest read will define a movement. And uh, we needed uh, what he called tablet keepers uh, to excommunicate those who were harming the movement and injecting hate into the public forum. And uh, he, ran, uh, he ran shotgun over that. He said he was not a philosopher. He brought back ideas uh, that kind of had uh, uh, vanished or vaporized into people's self-consciousness. He brought them back to center stage. When he was growing up, uh, Calvin Coolidge was in the White House. Uh, taxes were low. Uh, military spending uh, was uh, low. Uh, when people thought of government, they thought of uh, City Hall or Borough Hall. And the federal government has the last recourse. The president did not feel he had to be in your face every day with a program for every want and every need. Uh, he wanted to move America closer to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he did. You can say Reagan was no longer a president seeking to increase the number of programs, but if not to reduce them, at least to shrink their size. And uh, that's what he did. But he but he couldn't do it. He felt he couldn't do it successfully if he constantly took time out to deal with the latest outrage of the Ku Klux Klan or the John Birch Society or anybody else who thought they were conservative. <laughs> and he rode them out, and they cleansed the movement. He said all movements need to be cleansed, and he was proudest of that. He said somebody else would have built the movement, uh, but he's very proud that he wrote out the Birchers, wrote out the racists, uh, changed the magazine's attitude towards civil rights in the course of his own life, his own career, and that's what he wanted to be remembered for. All right. Well, the book is A Man and His Presidents, The Political Odyssey of William F. Buckley Jr. Al, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. That does it for this week's episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit YaleBooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app.